Well, today um, I'm really excited. Today's a, a special day for me personally, and I, I pray for you as well. Nineteen years ago, I was invited into a relationship that would transform and change uh, so many things in my life. I was invited to come and uh, have a relationship with a man who's here today named Roy Soup Campbell. So every Tuesday morning for three and a half years, at 5 a.m., I would go to Soup's house. Me and a small group of men, and we would sit and we would be taught the Bible by Soup. Not only that, I was invited to meet with the guy who discipled Soup, a man named Herb Hodges. And every Monday, I would have lunch with Soup and Herb and some other men. I was invited to dinner with Soup. I traveled around the world with Soup. I caught a vision for making disciples. And when I saw it, it's never left me. It's something that's changed the entirety of how I do ministry, of how I pursue ministry, of, of how I want to lead. Not only that, my heart for the nations grew out of that relationship with Soup. You see, I've traveled around the world with Soup and seen him minister in various contexts. In fact, it was on a trip in 2005 to Indonesia doing tsunami relief work, that the Lord made it clear that it was time to ask my wife to marry me. So even my relation, my wife goes back to a trip I did with Soup. So y'all, yeah, y'all give him a hand. So Soup, I want to invite you on up here. And uh, I can tell you, I would not be your pastor today. I, I, I believe that with all my heart. I would not be serving here at IEC if it wasn't for the relationship I have with Soup Campbell. So I'm so grateful for him. Uh, glad that you'll be blessed to get to hear from him. I love hearing Soup teach. And know this, he doesn't just teach from studying God's Word. He lives this out. He lives this out like uh, truly nobody else I've ever experienced in my life. So everything he shares, he's not just sharing things that we should do as Christians or ideas that we should be. He's sharing what he's lived out and what he's taught and shown others to live out. He's the one who not just taught me to be a man of God. He showed me what it looks like. So I'm going to pray and we'll be blessed to get to hear from Soup. So Soup, come on up and let me pray for you, brother. Yeah, y'all give him a hand. God, I thank you for my my father in the faith, a man who uh, loved me well, who's uh, challenged me at times I need to be challenged, encouraged me at times I need to be encouraged, who was a, an example of what a Christian looks like, an example of what a man of God looks like, an example of a husband to love his wife Linda, an example of a father an example of a, of a man who, even as a father, loved his family well and still took time for me and for so many others. Lord, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for his life, and I'm grateful that he would honor this church and honor me personally by coming, being here with us, and sharing in the pulpit of preaching the word, of challenging us. So, Lord, for the congregation gathered here, I know they're just going to get a taste of who this man is. They're not going to see the totality of what he does and how he lives. But God, I pray that in this time that he opens your word, that you would open our hearts and minds and we might receive, receive from you that which you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, man. Love you, man. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Mm -hmm. And good to see y'all this morning. Glad to be able to come and share God's word with you. And uh, glad to be here with my brown sugar, my bride my, of 38 years, Linda. That's my brown sugar. And, uh, and just a wonderful, wonderful companion and wife. And, 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 and I just appreciate and love her so much. Uh, Steve, as he shared, he's my son. One of my sons in the Lord in the ministry. And I have another one here, Damon Remigallo here. And uh, he'll be flagging me on time. I, I don't see very well. And so when you see him stand up and flagging me, uh, he'll be telling me it's time to land the plane. 
Then he has his wonderful wife, Heidi. I had the chance to marry them. And uh, one of the most wonderful weddings I had a chance to do. And Heidi's parents are here uh, with us uh, this morning. So we just thank so much. And I'm just so proud uh, this morning to have them here and, and, uh, and them to be a part of this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go ahead and get into this message. Uh, and we're going to look from the text of Matthew chapter 4, verse uh, 18 through 22. And if we had to pick a title, we're going to pick a title, Chosen for the Greatest. Chosen for the Greatest. Okay? So Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. And it's good to see uh, this place, uh, to see the different ethnicities in here. Now, I was born in 1959 in a place in the United States where it took civil rights a long time to get to where I lived. And uh, growing up, there was a time that I would think that I would never see a mix of ethnicities uh, where I lived and where I was from because of the racial prejudice and all those things that go on where I live. I grew up uh, 45 minutes from where a group called the Ku Klux Klan was uh, birthed. And I just thought, that it's gonna be very difficult to see places of different ethnicities. But when I look out over this place, it makes my heart jump with gladness. And, and, and I can see that this is gonna be a place to where the Great Commission can be lived out. Uh, uh, you can march the Great Commission. And one day, uh, I believe that statistics and, and programs and books will point back to this spot right here in Ethiopia to where uh, the Great Commission uh, was marched uh, to its fullest potential. I really believe that can happen here because you have a good man, uh, uh, Pastor, Pastor Steve. Uh, you have a good man. He has a heart for the nations. Uh, he loves people, loves his family, loves you all. He loves the word of God. He's a man of integrity. Uh, and, and be nice to him, love on him, love on him, encourage him. You know, some of the meanest people in the world is church people. And uh, when I complete my trips this year, I will have gone outside of the United States 142 times training pastors and leaders all over the world. So I've seen some bad pastors, I've seen some ugly situations. I've seen some people treat their pastors very badly, some good pastors. So y'all give him time, work with him, love on him, uh, get to know him and, and follow his lead. And, uh, and he will lead you into the Great Commission and global impact. And uh, so just want to say that to you. Uh, you got a good pastor here. Amen. And if he was a bad one, I would tell you that. OK, <laughs> but he's not. Now, I want to set some context before we move into our text here this morning. And in Jesus' culture, when he came into the culture and began to move toward his ministry, at this point, he's a rabbi, all right? He's a rabbi, a teacher. And rabbi is a term used for him more than any term in your Bible, rabbi, teacher. So when you're reading your Bible, you see a term teacher, uh, rabbi, master. Uh, it's that term, rabbi. And so he came and positioned himself in the position of a rabbi, and we can learn a lot from him because he's our model of what we ought to do in ministry. He has, he's our model. And so in his culture, um, when there was a schooling system they had, and it, they, he went to the triangle to find his disciples, he went, the triangle considered of uh, Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. And it was like a sideways triangle. And in the triangle, all the children went to school. Outside the triangle, you had some people who were illiterate. They didn't know the word of God. They couldn't read uh, these kind of things. But in the triangle, every kid went to school. And they really believed in Deuteronomy. And they really worked hard in the scripture and triangle. And my, many times, by the time those kids went to school, they had much of the Bible memorized. As a matter of fact, 
the children to learn their ABCs learned it through Psalms 119. Psalms 119 has 22 stanzas, 22 portions. There are 22 alphabets in the Hebrew, in the language, there are 22 Hebrew alphabets. And every alphabet had eight verses tied to each alphabet. So every alphabet they learned, they memorized eight verses with it. So they learned their alphabet and memorized Psalms 119. And many times the next book they memorized was the book of Leviticus. The one we kind of skip, the one we don't read much because there's so much blood and guts in there, right? But that was the greatest book of worship we have in our Bible. So the next book they memorized many times was Leviticus. And then they would move into memorizing the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Old Testament. And then they went to school, and the first schooling was Bet Safer. Bet, house, safer, book. So the first schooling was Bet Safer, house of the book. And they went there from ages five to about 11. And at that point, they continued to memorize the books of the Bible. And they many times at this point would have the first five books of the Bible memorized. Then they would move to the next level. Bet Talmud, house of learning. Bet Talmud, house of learning. And then they would continue to study the prophets, continue to memorize scripture, continue to learn the word of God and principles and how to live out the word of God. And this was about ages 11 to 14, 12 to 14. Bet Midrash. Midrash means study. Bet house, house of study. And only the best of the best would move to this next level of schooling. And they at this point could ask, a rabbi, may I follow you? And at this point, they would ask a rabbi, may I follow you? The rabbi would give them assignment. They would go home and do the assignment, come back and report it to the rabbi. If they satisfactorily completed the assignment, the rabbi says, yes, you have the chutzpah. You have the internal fortitude. You have the discipline. You have everything it takes to be exactly like me. Because their goal in pursuing a rabbi, and they pursued this relentlessly, and this was one of the things every young man and every kid in their culture in that triangle wanted to do. They wanted to pursue someone who had a life of godliness, a life of victory, and they wanted to be just like them. Not just know the knowledge, but be exactly as. And they would, and if their rabbi said, you can be like me, they would follow that rabbi from age 15 to age 30. And if they completed the process at age 30, they could have disciples and become a rabbi themselves. They would follow the rabbi so closely that they would go to the bathroom with the rabbi. And when the rabbi came out, the rabbi would wash their hands a certain way. The disciples would be lined up washing their hands the same way. Because when the rabbis washed their hands, they would say a prayer like, Lord, thank you for the openings in my body. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, that's a good prayer to pray today. Amen? If you don't believe me, let one of them get clogged up, okay? You'll be praying that prayer too, right? If a rabbi was 80 years old, he walked with a bad hip and he walked with a dip like this. He could have 12 disciples, nothing wrong with them, strong, muscular, football-playing disciples. Guess how they would come through? They'd be walking just like that rabbi. And everybody would say, that's amazing, look at that. They're, they're, they're just like their rabbi. It was the greatest accolade, it was the greatest esteem somebody could have in that culture. Because the goal was to be exactly like. But if someone came to the rabbi, he gave the assignment, and they messed up on the assignment, the rabbi would say, hey, you're a godly person. You're a godly young person, but you don't have what it takes to be like me. So go be a godly farmer. Go be a godly fisherman. Go be a godly stonecutter. But you don't have what it takes to be like me. So here we come to our text. And in verse 17, Jesus is getting ready to initiate his earthly ministry. He comes and says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he begins to walk by the Sea of Galilee. So here's Jesus getting ready to start his earthly ministry, present and future. 
And he didn't go plant a church. He didn't go start a radio broadcast or a TV show. The first thing our Lord and Master Jesus did when he's getting ready to start his earthly ministry, President Future, is go and get some disciples. Because I've talked to church planters who have been on the field a long time, and they said, we can plant churches and we can take church planters, but some of them would never make disciples. But those disciples that we have equipped, they're always churches that come out of that. And disciple making will be at the core of it. And churches will multiply because disciple making inherent has in it multiplication. So the first thing Jesus does is he goes and gets disciples. So look at that text, verse 18. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, cast a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately left their nets and followed him. Immediately left the family business, their nets, generational fishermen. Their father is looking for them to take on the generational trade and continue it. But immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left their boats and their father and followed him. And the father encouraged them to go ahead on. Now, in that culture, you had disciples would come and ask the rabbi, well, here these disciples are fishing. What did that tell you about what happened to them in their culture and what happened to them in the context and with the religious leaders in that culture? They were rejected by the religious leaders in their culture. The religious leaders said, you're not good enough to do this. You're not good enough to follow me. You're not good enough. You don't have what it takes to be like me. So they were rejected because they're back fishing. But here comes the rabbi. The one with what in their culture would be called shmika. And a shmika rabbi would be a rabbi who can make interpretations of the text of the scriptures. And you see that in Jesus' writings when he's talking and he says, you have heard them say, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. When Jesus says, but I say, he is giving shmika. And what Shmika is, is in the text, in the Bible, you hear it when it says, we, we have heard how your Pharisees and how your sages and how your teachers teach, but when he teaches, he teaches with one as having what? Authority. Shmika is authority. Jesus had the authority and the Shmika to make the proper interpretation of the text. So every time these other rabbis would question him and come up, up to him, these theologians he would just ask them a question and they could walk away and couldn't say anything to him. They would challenge him all the time. He would give them scripture back and they would walk away. So here these rejected disciples saw him doing that in their context, in the triangle. And remember when a rabbi says, follow me, come to me, there he's saying, you can be exactly like me. So here you're rejected by the religious leaders in your culture, but here comes the one that can silence them, make them walk away, and he tells you, you can be like me? Of course I'm gonna leave and get with him because I, at that point, probably thinking in my mind, I'm gonna get back at them too. So what do you think that did for their worth? What do you think that did for their esteem? How do you think that built them up that this rabbi with Shmika would come and get me as a rejected one? Have any of you ever been in a circumstance or situation where you've been rejected because you didn't have a certain kind of pedigree, because maybe you didn't have a certain kind of degree, maybe you didn't have this or you didn't have that or you didn't match up? Anybody ever been there? Come on, talk to me. Have you been there? Yes. Rabbi Yeshua, He's saying, follow me, and we'll get all that fixed. He takes in the rejected ones. John 15, 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. 
and appointed you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask of me in the Father's name, I will give it to you. So everybody in Christ, you've been chosen. You've been chosen. And chosen is a middle voice verb in the Greek. In English, we have two voices, active and passive. In Greek, you have three voices, active, passive, and middle. Active voice, I throw the ball. Passive voice, I'm just walking. Somebody else threw the ball. I'm just passively walking, and the ball hits me. Middle voice incorporates the two. It's like the man who bought a new boomerang. And he says, I don't need this old one. And threw the old one away and turned around and the old boomerang hit him in the head. You know what a boomerang is? It hit him in the head. So middle voice is, God act on me for salvation. He came and got me for salvation. And as I operate in the world among people and do his ministry and do his work, the results of what I do on earth comes back to him. And he takes the results of our life, positive or negative. But the results of we do, when we say we are Christian, the results of our life goes back to him because we're chosen in the middle voice. In other words, he says, I chose you for myself. So what did he choose these disciples for? Number one, he chose them for the greatest perception the greatest vision, the greatest perception. It says he walked by the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Andrew and Simon Peter. He saw James and John. What did he see in them? These were rejects. The religious leaders in their culture said they don't have what it takes. We reject them. So they were chosen for the greatest perception, the greatest sight, the greatest vision. What did he see in them? Well, Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there's no vision, the people perish. So people's eternity rides heavily on the believer's vision, how we see. Isn't that amazing? That people's eternity is attached to our vision, the way we see. So we better know what that vision is. Dawson Trotman with the Navigator says, vision is having on your heart what God has on his. Vision is having on your heart what God has on his. In Colossians 1.9 of the Phillips paraphrase, Paul says, vision is seeing things from God's point of view. Vision is seeing things from God's perspective. So what does God see? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed him should not perish but have everlasting life. So what does God see? Does God just see Africa? Does God just see Europe? Does God just see the U.S.? Does God just see my home? No. God has the whole world on his heart. And if I'm going to be like Christ, and if I'm going to be godly, then I must have the world on my heart also. So God has the whole world on his heart, a vision for the entire globe. And if I don't have a vision for the entire globe, I'm really not walking in biblical uh, obedience the whole world the entire world now I told you where I grew up I had an issue with white people I had some run-ins with white people I had an issue with them I didn't like them didn't like them at all then I went to junior college and God gave me a white roommate and a Jewish roommate and I go to the white roommate's house and his family treated me just like I was their own son didn't understand that then I went to the Jewish teammate's house. I put the little hat on. I ate the kosher meals. They treated me just like they was own son. So then God began to break in my heart. Hey, you can't look at one ethnicity because you got a group of them who are not right, who don't act right, who don't see people right. You can't put everybody in that ethnicity in the same category as these are not acting right. You got to get to know people individually. And in the U.S., we have media. We have a political system that makes believers and Christ followers hate and not like other people, and they've not met one person in that other ethnicity group. 
So God began to break that down in my heart, that prejudice, that racism. He began to break it down, began to work it in my heart. And he says, you got to see the son, the very son of the leader of those racist groups as an opportunity for evangelism and sharing the gospel the same as your own son in your own home. If you're going to be a lordship Christian. So God began to work in my heart in those areas. So what did he see in these young men? Now keep in mind, these young men were rejected. These young men were teenagers. And these young men were prejudiced. How do we know they were prejudiced? They were Jewish, and they definitely didn't like the Samaritans. So Jesus started his earthly ministry, present and future, with a bunch of teenage, rejected, prejudiced folks. Did they stay that way? Come on, did they stay that way? No. Anybody here Jewish? Look at this place. They didn't stay that way because everyone here will line up behind somebody who lines 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 up behind the disciples who shared the gospel. Everybody here will line up behind a spiritual downline of gospel sharing that will eventually line up behind one of the apostles who Jesus started with, who were teenage rejected prejudiced folks. If they had stayed that way, they would have only went to the Jews with the gospel. But the multi-ethnicity I see out here shows me that they got over that. So guess what? Prejudice will not be an excuse we can put before God of why we did not get the gospel to every ethnicity on the globe. It won't hold up because he started with a group like that. It will not hold up. And as I asked the other night, what place will you say is too hard for me to go and take the good news? What place is too hard? Or it's too hard, it's too dark there. What food is so repulsive that you say, I would not eat that? I just cannot eat that. My diet won't accommodate that. I just can't eat that food. It's too repulsive. When this family has taken three months of salary and stand on the wall and watch you eat with joy, because they were able to take three months of salary and provide you a meal. And I've seen Americans there turn their nose up at it. You think anybody else will have ministry to those folks? What people group, what ethnicity do you hate so bad that you would deny them the gospel of Jesus Christ? What ethnicity, what people group, what person do you hate so bad that you would deny them the opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel? And what is that one thing you would say, no, Lord, I can't do this for you? And at that point, you cannot claim that you're walking under his lordship. So if that's you, don't stand here and sing with your hands in the air no more. He is Lord. He is Lord. Yes, he's Lord, but he's not Lord. You're not walking his lordship. Don't you sit here and sing anymore. I will go anywhere for you, Lord. I'll do anything for you, Lord, because you'll be telling him a lie. You'll be lying to him and you'll be lying to yourself and you'll be fronting to everybody else. So what he see in these young men? He saw world changes. John 17, 20. He says, I don't only just pray for you. I pray for those who will believe in me through your word. So guess what? He prays through them into the future. To those that will believe in him through the words they speak. So who did he pray for that day over 2,000 years ago when he was praying for them? He was praying for you and I. He prayed through them to you and I. So he also prayed through you and I to the future folks that we will impact 
with the good news. So he sees in every single one of us a world changer, a world changer. He sees more in us than we see in ourselves. So the first thing he saw in them was the greatest perception, greatest perception. The next thing we see, he chose them for the greatest position, the greatest position. And the greatest position was to follow. When he says, follow me, the greatest position that we can have is to be in following a Christ, to be a follower of Christ, to be following him. Remember, when following a rabbi, that means to be exactly like him, to be exactly like him. So Jesus calling us into relationship to be exactly like him, to follow him, to follow me. He's our shepherd. We are his sheep. Now, in the West, shepherds drive the sheep. They drive the sheep. They use four-wheelers. They use horses. They use dogs, and they drive the sheep. In the East, shepherds lead by voice. My sheep hear my voice. They know me, and I follow them. Uh, they follow me. They lead by voice. So an eastern shepherd can lead from the front, come on sheep, come on sheep, and they follow. And in the darkest hour, when they're walking through canyons or when predators are after them, an eastern shepherd will drop to the middle of the pack. And at the darkest hour is when the shepherd is the closest to him. That's when he's the most near. But in our darkest hour, we think God is the most far us away. Almost like we got to, where are you, God? Where are you? He's going, I'm standing right here. I'm right here. I'm right here. This is when I'm closest to you. Then the Eastern Shepherd, now in leadership principles and books, we're always told, you can't lead from the rear. You can't lead from the rear. Not biblically. Biblically, that's not true biblically. Because the Eastern Shepherd can lead from the rear. Because he leads by voice command. And the eastern shepherd has to know what the terrain is out in front of his sheep. Because if he gives the command for the sheep to go and turn left, they will do that. And they, if, they, if it's off a cliff, they will continue to walk off a cliff until he gives another command. So they lead by voice. Do you know the voice of our shepherd? In banks. They teach the tellers to detect counterfeit money by counting real money. Not counting counterfeit money, but counting the real money. So when they handle the real money enough, they can know when counterfeit comes through. Have you been in the word enough? Have you heard the shepherd's voice enough? that when a counterfeit voice comes through, you automatically can detect it and know what it is. In the East, they always had two shepherds, never just one. They always had two shepherds because they got so acclimated to the shepherd's voice. If they only had one and that shepherd died, you had to kill the whole flock because they would not follow another voice. That's how they were acclimated to the voice of the shepherd. Are you acclimated to our shepherd's voice? Do you know him? Do you know which voice to follow? Do you follow him? Stay in the word of God. Study the word of God. Sing the word of God. Memorize the word of God. He puts it in a process to mold us into what he wants us to be. And some of that time, that process is not very... Uh, welcoming. Sometimes that process it, uh, doesn't feel good. You see, when he saves us, we may look like a lump of coal. And that's what gold is like. When it's dug out, it may look like a lump of coal. And someone who doesn't know what that is may just take it and put it against the wheel of your car to keep your car from rolling. They may take that and put it against the door to keep the door from swinging open. 
But someone who knows what it is, they'll look in it. And they'll go, something inherent in that is valuable. So they'll put it in this uh, tool, this cauldron. Then they'll turn the heat up on it. And it'll begin to boil and bubble up. And they'll take this instrument and they'll skim off the top. They'll look in there, uh, not ready. More heat. Turn up more heat, more boiling, more bubbling. More stuff comes to the top. Skim it off. Oh, just about right. Let's turn the heat down a little bit more or we might ruin it. Turn it down a little bit. And they'll continue that process until they can look over in that pot and see a perfect reflection of themselves. In the making process, when we come to him, we come to him with all our baggage, all our luggage, like that lump of coal. But he says there's something inside this person that's inherently valuable, that's inherently beautiful, that's inherently what I need to do what I need to do. And guess what? If we don't volunteer that stuff over to him that we don't need, that we know that we are holding on to, guess what he's going to do? He's going to turn up the heat. I have people come to me all the time, Pastor, I'm going through this. Will you pray that God will take this off of me? I said, I will not. I'm not going to get in his way. I will not. You know why he got the heat on you. What I'm going to pray for you is that you have the perseverance and endurance to make it through this. But you're not going to drag me up in that. So if we don't volunteer it over to him, he's going to turn up the heat. And he's a master craftsman. He knows just how much heat to turn up and how much heat to turn down. But his goal is to see a perfect reflection of himself in you and I. So he says, I will make you. I'm going to put you in a process and I will make you. He did that with Simon Peter. When Andrew, when his, bro when, when his brother brought Simon to Jesus, Jesus looked at him. He said he looked at him or beheld him. That's the word in blepo, E-M-B-L-E-P-O. Blepo means a casual gaze. See, men, when we see a woman that's not our wife, we just need to blepo. Just say, hey, that's a beautiful creation God made, and look away, get away from it. If you stay too long, you might get in trouble. So just blepo. So if you see another man looking too long at a woman, say, hey, bro, blepo. Just blepo now. Now, E-M means into or through. So when he brought Simon to Jesus, he emblepoed him. He looked into him and through him and saw his future, which he says, you are Simon, but you shall become Peter, which means a rock. So when he first brought him, he was shifting, shifty sand like you have on the seashore. And he removed everything out. And he put in what would help him set up to be a rock. You see, we're sitting under rock. We're sitting on rock. Rock all around us. At one time, this stuff was just sand. And somebody added something to it to make it set up and be strong and rock like it is. And there's a machine that they use to go around and it pulls that water out and those impurities out that keep it from setting up to be a rock. So in the whole process from Simon to Peter, Jesus added what was necessary to help him set up as a rock and he took out what was necessary that would not allow him to set up and he became a rock. Guess how he saw you and I when we came to him? He looked at us and he blepto'd us and he says, I see how you are. I see all your insecurities. I see what you're going through. I see what you bring to the mix. I see all your dirty laundry, but you're not going to stay that way. He emblepoed us, and he sees us as a world changer. Amen? He says, I will make you. There was a city below a dam, and it was a heavy rain, and, it, and, and they thought the dam was going to break. So the city evacuated, went on the hill above the dam. And one man was on the dam drinking a soda, a Fanta, good orange Fanta. And they were hollering, get off the dam, it's going to break. He looked up to him, 
no, just drinking soda. And one person brave enough to run down and said, hey, you better get off this dam, it's going to break, you'll be killed. He said, this dam is not going to break. He says, how can you be so sure? I'm the engineer, I built it. And this dam can handle much more, much more pressure than it's on it right now because I know what I put in it. You see, a disciple maker is a life engineer. So when someone attaches their life to you and they come to you and say, hey, will you build me, will you disciple me? You become a life engineer. And what you build into that person, the materials you use and what you build in that person determines what they can stand against. It determines what strength they will have. Jesus was the best life engineer that we have, that was ever seen. And he built that into their disciples, those disciples, and they stood against the world. They stood against everything that we today might have the good news of the gospel. And then we're chosen for the greatest purpose. And that's to fish for men, to be fishers of men. Today, in the numbers rising, there are over three billion people who've not heard a clear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And since 1981, I've only had five people attempt to share the gospel with me, and three of them were not even in my own country, that Christian nation. Only five that cared enough about me since 1981 to attempt to share the good news with me. How many of you out here have had someone attempt to share the good news with you out of the last year, out of three months or six months? How many of you have attempted to share the good news with someone? So we don't have to wonder why that number's rising. And all it starts is with a handshake, hey, how you doing? I'm Soup Campbell. What's your name? Or it starts with, hey, what's the greatest thing someone else has done in your life for you? Hey, can I ask you something? How did your family do during all this COVID and stuff? How did y'all do? Anything I can pray for you about? Any concerns you have? Just starts with a conversation. To fish for people. And God gave us a great commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples in all Thai ethnic, all ethnic groups. In other words, as you fish, as you're being trained, bring some alongside you and train them and we double the productivity of what we need to do. Bring some along with you and make these disciples. There was a rabbi who spent 20 years fishing in the Sea of Galilee, 20 years. And his goal was to see how many different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And what he found out was there was 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee at that time. And you remember when Jesus came back and got Peter in John 21 when they was fishing? And Peter dragged the net up on the seashore. Anybody remember how many fish was in there? 153 fish. It's the only account that you have that a fish uh, a fishing expedition where the fish are numbered. It's the only account you have where fish are numbered in the net. That was probably in the school books of that day. But what was God showing to those disciples? What was he showing them? He had given them the Great Commission. So he was sharing with them, as you fish for men, what I'm showing you with this count of fish that you've caught every species of fish in the Sea of Galilee, what I want you to know is, I want you to catch every ethnicity group on the earth, just like you've caught every species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. So who should we fish for? All Thai ethnic, all nations. 
all nations. I was in the Far East Asia where it's against the law to share the good news. Against the law to gather. I was in a hotel. We were getting ready to eat, me and a friend of mine. And this little lady walks up to him at the breakfast. 98 pounds, little skinny lady. And says, will you have breakfast with me? And this is a big guy. Big guy. He says, I got a better idea. Will you come eat breakfast with me and my friend? So she comes over to our table and sit down. And it wasn't three minutes that we knew what she was doing. She was fishing. And she began to share the good news of the gospel with us. Now I'm talking about in a place where if we had turned her in, she could be jailed, killed, persecuted, put in a work camp. Many things could happen to her, her family. They could tap into her church network, which is underground church network, a lot of things. But she cared enough about our souls to take the risk in sharing the good news of the gospel with me. And you saw two grown men weeping. We didn't stop and say, hey, we're Christians. You can stop. Don't do that. Now, we wanted to hear her say it because she cared enough about us. And the church and believers today, we say scripture, revelations. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And it's scripture. But the paradigm we say that in is, come, Lord Jesus, come. The world is so bad. It's just getting darker and darker. We got wars, we got people happening, things are happening to these babies. The world is so bad. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I got this illness in my body. Come, Lord Jesus, come. For me, for me, for my purpose, for my selfishness. Come, Lord Jesus, come and get us out of this mess. How can I pray that prayer and say that when I got family members who don't know Jesus and if he came today, they would go to eternity without him? How can I say that when I got neighbors, that if he came today, they would go to an eternity without him? I got co-workers. It may be somebody in this building. That if he came today, they would go to an eternity without him. How can I, as a Christ follower, pray that prayer that way? In other words, what I would be saying is, come, Lord Jesus, come, because I don't care about these other folks going to eternity without you. Just come for me. But the way we ought to be praying that prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. We followed your commission. We've multiplied the good news of the gospel all over the globe. It ain't but 10,000 more people that hadn't heard the gospel. Hey, y'all, you better get your bags packed because by 10 o'clock we out of here. Come, Lord Jesus, come, because we have obeyed you, fulfill your commission, and everybody's heard the good news. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's how we ought to be looking at it. Steve talks about Revelation 7, 9. I've heard him mention it, Pastor Steve, over and over. Over and over. Um, my brown sugar is much more healthier than I. Probably going to outlive me. And I do a life insurance policy. And I don't know, do y'all have it over here? Yeah, y'all got life insurance. Why they call it life insurance when you can't get it when you live it? <laughs> I guess it sells better than death insurance, right? But I got life insurance policy and try to make investment here and there. And I don't tell Linda how much it is. Uh, because I don't, I don't want her to get too excited about it, okay? All right, I want her to get excited. So she had to go to the lawyer and find out what it is. But when the Lord takes me home, income will still come to her as if I was still here working every day. She, I'm worth more financially dead than I am alive. And she will still have income coming into her long after I leave this earth. That's called residual income. Income that continues to come in after the initial investor is gone. The true test of ministry is not how much happens while I'm here, but what continues after I leave this earth. 
will there still be souls coming into the kingdom in a residual long after I've physically left this earth? That's the real test of ministry. And if you meet that, and if you make disciples, then you definitely will continue to have a, an investment or some numbers in Revelation 7, 9, when there's a number that no one can count at the throne from all nations, kindreds, languages, tongues, praising the Lord at the throne, how many will we have represented in that number? Well, if all you do is evangelism and that's all you do and no disciple making, very few. But if you disciple making, which will build a certain kind of evangelist, long after you leave this earth, through your downline, residuals would continue, continue to come into the kingdom. And then you can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done good and faithful servant. Does anybody want to hear those words? Let me see your hands if you want to hear those words. Do you want to hear those words? Well done. Let me see your hands. Then make disciples. Make disciples. Be a disciple. Make disciples. And you will hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank y'all for letting me share the word with you this morning. I appreciate you. Um, I'm Probably, I, I have no doubt, I'm one of the hardest persons on the globe uh, to, to listen to. Uh, translators tell me I'm the hardest person to translate. As I've been sharing with Damon and Steve, you've, you, you've got 85 different dialects in this country, right? Well, today you got 86, because I got my own, okay? I got my own. You got 86 today, all right? When I leave, you have 85 again, but now you got 86. But thank y'all. I appreciate you. Love y'all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the opportunity just to bring your word. Thank you for Pastor Steve and you bringing him here and Margaret and their family. Thank you for the work you're doing here. And Lord, use this body of believers as a, as a springboard, as a launching pad for global impact that, that the world may know you and there'll be no place left that your name is not glorified. In Christ's name, amen.